Amen, amen. Well, I have a few bonus announcements before we get into God's Word together. Last weekend at the All Church Rally, we handed out the annual report from 2019. If you did not get an annual report, we're going to hand them out on the way. Uh, We're going to hand them to you on the way out today. So make sure you grab one because this reflects all of the amazing things God did last year. And if you read it cover to cover, you can go to our bookstore and tell them you did it and you'll get a $20 gift card. How about that? Where else you could get a $20 gift card, huh? Just for reading an annual report cover to cover and you'll be blessed. So make sure you grab one and you read it. Also, this morning we are releasing our annual financial report. So we put together the official uh, financials and those are available at the connection table. So the connection table on your way out to the right, you can grab a copy. Both of these reports are available on our website. So you can check out under the tab that says give the annual financial report or you can check out the annual report. And there's just awesome things in both of those. God has been faithful. He has met all of our needs. So make sure that you get informed on what God did in our church last year. Last, uh, last uh, bonus announcement is grab a, if you haven't already done it, a winter prayer guide and make sure that you are praying through the winter prayer guide. Raise your hand if you started praying through the winter prayer guide. This is also available on our Facebook page, and I sent it out in our church email uh, last week. So make sure that we want to be a praying church, so make sure that you are lifting up your voice with the rest of us to heaven so that God pours out his blessing upon his church. Well, today is an exciting day because we are beginning a brand new series in the book of Ephesians. You can turn to the book of Ephesians, and as you go there, understand that this is one of the most amazing books in the New Testament for a variety of reasons. Um, But it's amazing because it calls for glory in God's church. And let's face it, all last week we talked about what's wrong with the church, and then we compared it to how the church was born and how even the the church in its earliest form was so beautiful and filled with with power, uh, and they were courageous. And we talked about how today the church is in need of God's glory to fill us individually and as a community. Everywhere you look around the world, the church is struggling and suffering and there's pain and there's suffering. And there's the opportunity now to invite God's glory to fill us. That's why we're in the book of Ephesians this, uh, this year. It's going to be a 40-week study, so buckle your seatbelts. And after 40 weeks, I'll let you leave. So it'll be good. The hospitality team will bring us some coffee every now and then. 40 weeks starts today. (laughs) I thought, how do I start this series on the book of Ephesians? There's many different ways to do it. And I decided to pretend that I'm the Apostle Paul and you are the church in Jerusalem that sent me out on my missionary journeys. And I just got back from my third missionary journey and I'm bringing a missionary report to you and I've just spent two years in Ephesus, the city that the book of Ephesians is written to. So, uh, I'm back. Did you miss me? Welcome back. Hi. Oh my goodness. You have no idea what happened over the last two years. Uh, Apollos was there first and I heard that he was debating like crazy in public all the people who tried to challenge the truth of our faith. He tore them up. I mean, in grace, but I mean, he just really thoroughly showed them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were there too, and we all know them. They're amazing, and they've been working there. Uh, And then, you know, I just passed through my last missionary trip, and they said, will you stay? And I couldn't. You know that. And so then finally I did. I got back there, 
and I stayed, I had no idea what was about to happen. When I first got there, I met 12 guys, and they only heard about John the Baptist. So I told them about Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit fell in such power that these 12 guys started speaking in tongues right there in front of me. I mean, it was like another Pentecost. It was incredible. So I kind of knew that something amazing was going to happen. So then we went into Ephesus, and for three months we went to the synagogue, and we tried to convince our brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith that, you know, Christ is the Messiah. Three months, finally they started standing up while I was talking and just like shouting things at me and accusing us of being evil, so we all left. And we decided that we'd go down the street and we started renting a school. It's called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And we would just meet during the day. That's where we had church. Uh, And for for two years, we would send out evangelists and church planners uh, to the entire region. Everyone in the whole region of Ephesus heard the gospel. It was really amazing. Uh, But there's some stories... There was so much supernatural power flowing through me, all right? You know I'm a murderer, okay, so don't be impressed by me. Uh, But God has given me the ability to heal and to take away diseases and sicknesses, but not like here. In Ephesus, if I was too busy, I could just take like a, a, a handkerchief or an apron from my tent work and send it with someone and the demons would scream and leave, like because of my hanky. It was unbelievable, and it had never happened before. God really poured out his supernatural power. What's really funny is there were seven sons of the high priest, right? And they're not of the faith. They don't believe in Jesus. But when they saw this power, they thought they would just start using the name of Jesus in their routine. So seven of them went into this person who was demon-possessed, and they said, in the name of this and this and this, and Jesus, who Paul preaches, we tell you to get out. And the demon looked at him and said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul. Who are you? And then jumped on all seven of them, beat them bloody, stripped them naked, seven guys running naked through the streets of Ephesus, beaten up. I laugh. I've got to admit it. I laugh. Maybe I shouldn't have. It was hilarious. And then after that happened, everyone in town was so afraid that they wanted Jesus on their side. And so there were Christians who were kind of keeping a little magic on the side, and then there were non-Christians who were just really afraid of demons anyway. So the whole town had this massive burning one day. They brought their books out. They brought their scrolls out. They brought their amulets and their charms, and it was just one big, big burning. We calculated that they burned about $6 million, million worth of stuff. Unbelievable. I couldn't even process it. Eventually, people stopped going to the temple of Artemis, you know, the wonder of the world, and buying their little silver souvenirs at the temple because they were kind of afraid. The silversmiths got all mad because they weren't making their money. So they started a riot. And the whole town went to the theater and they chanted for two hours, Great is Artemis! Two hours, and they wanted to kill me. I told the guys I wanted to go in there and preach the gospel. They wouldn't let me do it. Now, come on. I mean, I've been in more dangerous places than that. But once the town calmed down, I knew it was time for me to get out of there. So I left, and I'm alive, and I'm back. It's great to see you. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing that update? Because it really happened. That is what happened in Ephesus. And when the Apostle Paul got back, he was changed. He was he couldn't believe the. There were some places like in, in uh, Thessalonica, they could barely make it in and out, right? Because they got chased out right away. In Ephesus, it became a center of church planting and evangelism. It was unbelievable what happened. 
So years later, when the Apostle Paul sat down and, and penned the letter to the church in Ephesus, boy, did he have a lot on his mind. And we're beginning to study that letter that he wrote to that church. It's an unbelievable book that we're going to begin studying today. Let me pray God's blessing on it, and then we'll get into it. Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful things you did in the city of Ephesus so long ago. Thank you, O Lord, that you would show your power and that you would transform lives radically in such a supernatural way, so much so that we are still talking about this city that lies in ruins many thousands of years later. We ask that you would edify us through this entire study and show us what it means to welcome your glory into our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this uh, first sermon is going to be a bit more of an overview. We're not going to dig super deeply into the passages. I'm going to give you kind of a flyover of the book. Um, But in in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this whole (laughs) two-verse intro is filled with miracles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Wow! He was a destroyer of the faith. Uh, It's important to understand the context of the book because then you understand the depth of the message. So let's dig into this. Number one, you can write this down. Let's understand the context. If we don't understand the context of a book, why would we just tear into it and start reading it and assume that it's something spectacular or supernatural? It's really important that we know the background of the book. Understanding the context is the only way that we can get to the meaning. And I'm just kind of pausing here to comment on how we believe that we get to the meaning of the text. Uh, The Bible is a heavenly inspired book by God's Holy Spirit. The Bible flat out says that it is God breathed, but it was written through human authors to other humans. So this divine book that was handed down from heaven traveled by mule and ship to get to a local community church where they opened it up and read it, preserved it, copied it, and spread it around the region. That's how the Bible was uh, transmitted to us. And when we try and get the truth out of the Bible, the question is, how do we determine truth from heaven? How do we define truth from heaven? And one way we do it is by the author. And flat out the book says that it's Paul, an apostle. Jesus authorized his apostles who who were witnesses of the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, to write books on his behalf. So the author is a huge reason we would say this is a divine book. Uh, When it comes to how we determine the meaning and define the truth, we have to know that we believe in the literal, uh, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. So what the author wrote literally is what it means. And historically, what it meant to the local audience is what it means. And grammatically, what the words mean is what it means. And I'm sharing this with you because we live in a day where people don't think you can actually know the truth about anything. Right? Truth is relative, and if it's right for you, it's right for you. And if it's right for me, it's right for me. And they believe that it's very relative, right? Uh, But they're highly selective about where they apply this relative view of truth. For example, how many of you have heard about the scandal in Major League Baseball? The sign-stealing scandal. Raise your hand if you've heard about that. Who is it? Is it the Astros? The Astros now, they have proof. They put all these segments together of showing they were cheating. They were stealing signs for the opponents, and then they were telling the batter what pitch was coming. Well, after many months, the Astros finally released a statement this week, and they said, we don't believe that that had any impact 
on how good our team was. We believe that it had, listen, no effect on the outcome of the games, and we won the World Series fair and square. (laughs) Well, if they feel like winners, who are we to disagree with them? If they feel like the sign-stealing didn't actually affect the outcome of the game, who are we to judge them? Do you see how that view of truth doesn't work? It doesn't work in sports. When they're watching the replay in the NFL, you know, the referee doesn't say, Hey, Frank, do you feel like that was a catch? I don't know if I feel like that was a catch. I mean, the view of truth that's very relative doesn't work in banking, in finance, in business. It doesn't work in sports. It, it doesn't really work anywhere. Um, but we're, we're determined to apply it to the most important categories, which is morality and spiritual truth. Anyway, I have to tell you that we believe in absolute truth, and we believe that this book in Ephesians is absolutely true for every man, uh, child, woman, human, old and young, For all generations, we believe it's true. And what's true about it is what the original author intended to say to the original audience. Now, once we determine what the Apostle Paul said, then we can know what it means. Then we do ask ourselves, how do we apply that to our our world today? We do. We learn how to apply. And there are many different applications. How you apply it might be different than how I apply it, but it doesn't change the meaning. So... Understand the context. Jot this down. The author is Paul, and he wrote it from prison. Paul was an enemy of the faith, and he was turned into a missionary and a church planter, fearless, hunted down, sometimes escaping out of cities, being lowered by a basket, and he was fearless because he saw the risen Lord. Hey, if you doubt whether Christianity is true, let me just share with you one of the most convincing things you can find out is that the destroyer of the early church saw the risen Christ and was convinced then that he was wrong. He became the builder of the church that he once persecuted. That's evidence. He became an apostle. And he wrote it from prison. That's how God slowed him down. He just kept going everywhere, and God had to get him to write the Bible, so he threw him in jail. <laughs> there he is, sitting chained to a Roman soldier. You know, Finally, he, he, some of you can't sit down for a while. You're always up and around and busy, and sometimes if God's got work for you to do, you know, like he's got to give you a cold or something. <laughs> Paul was in jail. He was in Rome, and write this down. The date was AD 62. The date was AD 62. He was in Rome under house arrest, so it wasn't like he was in a dungeon. He was under house arrest. The Roman officials kind of knew that Paul was getting thrown under the bus legally, but they kind of had to keep him in custody. But he he penned this letter from house arrest in Rome. Uh, Here's a few pictures of Paul's missionary journeys. In the first journey, you can see that he uh, started in Jerusalem, went up north, and then the blue arrow shows you that he went over uh, and traveled west and And then he traveled the yellow area through Macedonia and back down to Corinth and Athens. And then he just made a stop right in the middle of the map, a stop in Ephesus. Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey, but in the Bible it's called Asia. So when you think Asia, don't think like China. In the Bible, the region of Asia is what's currently, what's Turkey today. So that's where Ephesus is located. And then, but he, he had made a quick trip and then he had to go home. So here's the third journey. On the third journey, he traveled by land, and he came to Ephesus from the east. Then he stayed there for two years, and he finally got out of there, traveled around again down to Corinth, and then finally came back, and he uh, went back to Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be thrown in jail and persecuted. So that's on his third journey when he actually camped in Ephesus and made that his base. 
Um, I mentioned before that they had to meet for a few years in a school, which is kind of cool. We did that. We did that, right? Uh, they met in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Like you get your schedule and, you know, you're like, who do you have for history? Uh, Dr. Tyrannus. Oh, boy. You're in trouble. <laughs> the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They met there for a few years. The early church. They didn't own buildings. Jot this down. Ephesus, the city, was known for being diverse, superstitious, wealthy, truth people. Diverse, superstitious, wealthy, truth people. Uh, they were smart. They were sober-minded. They were rational, yet they were also superstitious. And somehow that all worked in one city. Uh, in some cities, uh, they, they weren't as developed or wealthy or intelligent or educated, right? But in Ephesus, they had all those things together. Still super superstitious. They were into magic and they had a temple of Artemis, but they were really rational. So that after two hours, when the, you know, the highly emotional people drove the crowd to the theater, they were shouting for two hours. Finally, somebody stood up and they were like, hey, 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 uh, we got to calm down. We're going to get charged with rioting, so everybody just go home. And they did. All right, so they're, they're, they're kind of a cool-it city overall. Uh, they're diverse. There were slaves, there was the lower class, there were the workers, and there was also the rich. And archaeology has discovered a lot of big homes and big house complexes. And it was a very highly developed city. They were very superstitious, uh, not only in the magic and the forms of charms and trying to hack into the spiritual realm, but also believing in many gods, Artemis in particular. The temple to Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world. They were wealthy. They were loaded. They were a port city. They had a lot of money. They were the stop uh, on the way to the east from Rome itself. And they were truth people. They were overall pretty rational and educated. Here's some pictures that I dug up of the city of Ephesus. One artist has done this amazing job of reconstructing a view of the city from uh, the historical records and the archaeological evidence. So when you think... Go back to that first picture. When you think of an ancient city, you know, you might think like mud huts. No, this was a wonderful, beautiful city. Uh, this theater could seat over 20,000 people. And you can see it stretch out with all of these government buildings and these marketplaces and these houses. I mean, all the way to the port. It was a glorious city. And here's the next picture. It was a sprawling city. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years went into this city getting built up. Um, it, was a, it was a prestigious city. They were so wealthy and so proud that when an earthquake came in there and kind of destroyed much of the city, they, they fixed it all up and, and they told other people, we don't need your money. No, we got it. No, we're good. No, we're, we're fine. They were very proud. And I think we have one more picture of the Temple of Artemis. This was a wonder of the, one of the seven wonders of the world. People would come from afar to visit this temple uh, of Artemis and they believed that they held some sacred rock that fell from heaven, and it was a glorious thing. Do we have one more? Uh, and then this, these are the ruins today. So still, there are, uh, there's rubble that testifies to the glory of the city, uh, but that is Ephesus. It was diverse, it was superstitious, it was wealthy, it was filled with truth people, and that's where Paul was camped for two years, and that's what this book, that city is where this book arrived uh, so long ago. So that's number one, understand the context. Number two, we are going to go to the key passage of the book. So jot this down. What fills God's church with glory? What fills God's church with glory? And check out chapter 3. We're going to go to verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 14, we find a prayer. We find a prayer. And again, this, this whole prayer could be two sermons. I'm just going to give you the, uh, the flyover of it because it leads to our key verse for the whole series. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So it's a prayer. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now here's the key verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is an amazing prayer. To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. That is the cry of our heart for the next 40 weeks. That is the promise of God. It's both a promise and a prayer. To Him be glory in the church. Now let's dig down into what it means for God, God's church to be filled with glory. First of all, you have to understand what glory is. You were made to glorify God. But if I were to ask you what does it mean to glorify God, many people can't describe that. You can't quite describe what you were made for. God's glory is the manifestation of who he is and what he's done. His power and his presence. Now we can't fully survive the full manifestation of God's glory. So when Moses said, remember what he said? Show me. What did he say? Moses said, show me your glory. He had no idea that if God had answered his prayer, the whole universe would have been evaporated. It would have been incinerated if God did say, well, you asked for it. What happened to humanity? Moses asked God to show him his glory, and he did. It would, it would consume all of creation if God showed us his glory. I found a creative way to describe this when we preached through the Moses series. Um, maybe you remember this, but I found this really awesome website called The Universe Sandbox. You can go onto this website and it opens up the universe for you and you can tinker with it. You can move planets around and stars around and it's, you're lucky that it wasn't real because I had a lot of fun. And I was moving moons around. What happens if this goes here? And it shows you the physics of it. So I was sitting there and I was like, I wonder what the biggest star in the universe is. And I found it. Canis Majoris, I found it. Then I was like, I wonder what would happen if I brought that into our solar system. And so here's a video of the, uh, what would happen if we brought the largest Canis Majoris, the largest known star in the universe into, look, that's our little solar system. And that's our teeny little sun. Do you see it? Our teeny little sun, and that's the largest known sun in creation. And little, little reports come up on the right-hand side. So like a little report pops up right there, and it says temperature on Earth, 1,000 degrees. It isn't even by Pluto yet, and we're frying. All right, so let me, here's my point. Here's my point. Look at that picture, and here's my point. If when Moses said, God, show me your glory, God brought that... And everyone died. This is something he made. 
What if he decided to show us who he really fully is? Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't survive the full manifestation of God's glory. So praise God, he's, he's created ways that his glory can be manifested without us dying. <laughs> and that's both terrifying and wonderful. So when we are told we can glorify God, it means that we can experience his glory and we can enjoy his glory in a survivable form. That means that you can actually be living proof that God has been somewhere. That means that you can actually, your life can be living proof that God has done something glorious. That means that our church can be filled with lives that are being changed. And that our church can be living proof that God is here and that he is doing something eternally glorious. And that's what it's all about. It's about glorifying God. Well then, what fills the church with God's glory? What gives the world evidence that God has been somewhere or done something? Well, in Colossians 1.27, it says this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us, in our midst, that gives us hope of glory. Hope of actually doing something and being something glorious. It's an unbelievable thought that God wants to fill our church with his glory. And it says this, For this reason, in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Jot this down. The prayer is, fill us with the power of your spirit. He's asking, fill us with the power of your spirit. He's praying that. This is a plea. The power of God's spirit is a supernatural power. Power to save from sin and death. It also reflects a spiritual warfare that was going on in Ephesus and that goes on today. There are many powers in the heavenly realms, demons, angels. And in Ephesus, I already told you about a legendary spiritual battle that was going on between demons, between temple worship, and God prevailed because his spirit fell. Hey, listen, if, if you want power, the world tells you that you need to pursue it by being political or athletic or educated, or good-looking, influential, muscular, talented, wealthy. If you have those things, you'll have power. Uh, false. 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 None of those things will endure the end of this world or your life. If you want power, there is simply no substitute for God's Spirit at work in your heart. If you want to truly live a life that's marked by a glory that will never fade, it's God's Spirit living in your soul. That's your only hope of glory, Christ, in you. Everything else, all other forms of glory are fading. Fading. Fill us with the power of your Spirit. Hey, there's no substitute for God's power at work in your life, in your heart in your family, in your marriage. There's no substitute for God's spirit at work in this church. There's no power that rivals it. Not in all creation is there anything more powerful than God's spirit. Hey, listen, this is a shocking, unexplainable thought, but something bigger and brighter than Canis Majoris is in this room right now. Amen. And we're alive. That is glory 
And whatever Hollywood promises you, whatever Washington promises you, whatever Cosmo promises you, that is not. Fill us with the power of your spirit. Now be careful. We're suspicious of those who would learn about what happened in Ephesus, the magic handkerchiefs, and, and the, 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 all that. And they would conclude that that's the type of expression of God's spirit that needs to be happening on a regular basis here. Be very skeptical and suspicious of those who are marketing the supernatural to fatten their own wallets. The celebrities on TV or in person who are trying to show you, they'll send you the miraculous handkerchiefs. That's all very foolish, all right? Uh, when it comes to the showboats who claim to wield a power greater than the apostles on demand daily, uh, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. If they offer to send you the holy water, don't be fooled. They want your money. The power at work in the physical realm was simply there to show you the power of the Messiah in the spiritual realm. That's not the way it was supposed to be. In fact, the miracles in Ephesus were so, so far beyond the common that it was shocking to the New Testament audience to hear about it. So don't read that and be like, that's what we need more of today. No, no, you're missing the point. All of that authenticated the power of the gospel. That's the power. That's the power. God's strength is flowing through his church and through his people. But it is displayed and it is enjoyed in ways that are very unlikely. In Isaiah 40, verses 20 to 29, 28 to 29, I'll put it on the screen. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Listen, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. What's God doing with all of this otherworldly power? Is uh, He's helping the weak. God's power is ours to tr- encourage us, to transform us, to empower us to reach the world. That's how His power is flowing. It's not about doing magic tricks. It's not about causing natural miracles. That's not it. Fill us with the power of your spirit. The next prayer is this. Fill us with faith in Jesus, our Savior. Fill us with faith in Jesus, our Savior. It says this in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So this idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts, what that means is this. The Trinity is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when it says Christ in you, it's synonymous with the Spirit of Christ in you. The Holy Spirit is not the same person as Jesus or the Father. They are three persons and they are one nature. So the Spirit in you, in one sense, is unique. It is the unique person of the Holy Spirit, not the force, the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us in a special relational way, to empower us to live the Christian life. That is the Spirit of Christ. So when it says Christ in you, it's the same. But it doesn't mean that Christ is literally like slinking into your body. You know, he's on the throne. But because his Spirit is in you, he is in you. When it comes to Christ being in us, the Spirit being in us, what that means is it's the Spirit that helps to fill us with faith in Jesus our Savior. 
And I just have to pause here to ask the question, are you saved? Are you a saved person? Now, I didn't ask you if you're religious, because that's different. I didn't ask you if you were, uh, you know, rational or scientific or, you know, influential. Or I asked if you're saved. Are you a saved person? Here's a picture of the cross. Jesus died on the cross. And there, on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the sins of all the world, your sins included. And if you want to know God, if you want to encounter God, if you want his power to flow through your life, if you want his glory to abide in your soul, you have to know why Jesus died on the cross. He did that to take away all of your sins. And only when all of your sins have been paid for in full can God wash them away and then can his spirit fill you with his power. Are you a saved person? Have you asked Jesus to save you of all of your sins and have you invited his spirit to come and to dwell in you? Fill us with faith in Jesus, our Savior. Many people aren't willing to tell the truth about how lost they are. They think they're pretty good and they think God will kind of make a way for them to get into heaven based on their own good deeds. And listen, if you're trusting your own track record, your own rap sheet, your own report card... You don't know that you need a savior. Now, I told you before that I am a big fan of Star Trek. And there is a new show out called Picard. Now, the show Picard is a show that uh, is really amazing. How many of you are others? Are you Star Trek fans? Raise your hand. Not that I'm playing favorites, but I like you more. All right? So, <laughs> I love it. It's an amazing show. And uh, Picard now, he's retired from Starfleet. And he now, but now he has a mission. And nobody will go with him because they don't trust him. So he's trying to get a ragtag group of people on his crew. So he's got this crew and he's got this little ship and he's flying. He goes back to this Romulan uh, world and he goes down and he tries to convince this warrior that he knew when the guy was a kid to come with him. And the guy's asking him questions. But this Romulan group is very special because they, they think very carefully before they bind their heart to a cause. And once they bind their heart to a cause, they bind themselves to it for life to the death. So Picard's trying to convince him, you should really come with me because of my quest. Well, finally the guy does. So when he brings this guy back on the ship, another crew member says, wow, how did you convince him to come? And Picard says, well, he found that our, you know, that our mission was worth, our cause was worthy. And she goes, well, how do they make the decision on which cause to pick? And Picard says, well, they only pick lost causes. And then she said, what? <laughs> they only pick lost causes? Yeah. In other words, the warrior won't join you unless it's a lost cause. And listen, until you admit that you are a lost cause, Jesus will not save you. He only binds his mission to those who are lost causes. And if you think you're still getting it done, you don't have him. When you say, I am a lost cause, and I can't get to heaven without you, then he's with you. He's a savior. Fill us with faith in Jesus, our savior. Now, Ephesus gave us a wonderful example of what it means to be saved and believers who actually grew up in the faith, meaning they grew strong in the faith. They grew knowledgeable about the faith. They, grew, they had an understanding about the faith. That wasn't true about other churches. When it says here, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that means both being saved, but it also means growing up, growing mature, learning about Christ, and being strong in doctrine. And, and boy, this church was filled with strong people in doctrine. <clears throat> this book 
is not baby steps, all right? Now, that wasn't true of other churches. When Paul talked to Corinth, he's like, I'm, I'm still spoon-feeding you the Gerber, okay? You're not getting it yet, so I'm going to keep it real simple for you, Corinthians. When, he talked, when, he, when the book of Hebrews was written uh, by another author, the author of Hebrews said, you're still on milk, meaning nursing, okay? Uh, that'd be a little insulting if, if you're, you know, in your 50s, and I was like, it sounds like you're still a nursing Christian, I'm going to wean you. What? How dare But the Bible flat out would tell certain cities, look, you got to grow up. You don't understand the truth of the gospel. Not Ephesus. The Ephesians got a grown-up book. This is like solid, thick steak. They were grown up in the faith. And let me ask you this. Are you striving to grow in your understanding of the faith, to deepen your understanding of the truth? I, was at our, uh, I stopped by our men's Bible study last uh, yesterday morning. It's amazing to see a, a room full of men who want to go deeper in God's Word. You've got classes all the time to try and help you to grow deeper in God's Word. I remember when I was a new Christian as a freshman in college, I didn't know the first thing about God's Word. I loved it. I read through the book of Acts and I was like, this is so amazing. And then I got to chapter 20 and then I turned the page and I'm like, how did it end? I was just so excited. I had never read the Bible. I read, I read books in the Old Testament. I couldn't even pronounce the name. I called my friend once and I was like, hey, have you discovered the book of the Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes? I, I can't even say it. I couldn't even say the book. But I was excited to read it. Then I discovered Song of Solomon. Hubba hubba. I had never read it before. The Bible was totally new to me. Yeah, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And I know what it means to be a baby in the faith. I know that. And, and I would just encourage you, if you're kind of a newer Christian and you don't really know the Bible, hey, dig deep. Get to know the Bible. Read it. And if you've been in the faith for 40 years, guess what? God can still blow you away with the truth in this book. Are you going deeper in the faith? What fills God's church with glory? Well, the prayer is, fill us with the power of your spirit. Fill us with faith in Jesus our Savior. And then, jot this down, Fill us with deeply rooted love. Fill us with deeply rooted love. It goes on to say this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Love, love. The Ephesian church actually failed this category. Oh, they were a truth church. I mean, if you come from a bit of a fundamentalist background, you know truth church. They got the truth a little too right because they neglected the love, the heart for each other and for Christ. So in the book of Revelation, when the church of, uh, uh, in Ephesus gets a letter from Jesus, they hear the line, remember, you've forgotten your first love. And they were actually inviting God's judgment because they were focused on the truth, but they were neglecting the love. And the Bible is clear, if I do not love, I am nothing. So we have to make sure that we don't just go, truth, 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 no grace. We're doctrinal watchdogs, exposing your error. No, no, no. We're shepherds growing your heart. I heard about something that I think is uh, really unnecessary in human history. One country has decided to hold an international ice 
fast. Ice fast. Here's a picture from the international ice fast. And I'm like shivering in Chicago. Here's another picture. And I see that these people are actually flying from around the world to get frozen. Here's another picture of a guy. What are these people thinking? Who wants to go to an ice fest? Now look, if we're not careful, when people visit us Sunday morning, if we're not careful and intentional, we're going to become an ice fest. Nobody's happy to see me. Nobody says hi to me. I only talk to my people. Like, if we don't get love right, it's going to be frosty in here. How are you doing in your small groups or on your ministry teams or even on Sunday morning about just warming it up? You know, how are you doing? Why don't you meet someone new every week? Why don't you just say, all right, every week I'm going to pick one person and I'm just going to say, hi, I don't think we've met before. I mean, can you imagine what that would do for the strength of relationships? It's always interesting to hear people who are newer to the church who are really interested in connecting and trying to connect. And sometimes it goes well and sometimes they're just kind of, you know, uh, falling through the cracks, having a hard time connecting. And um, I don't know when you started coming to the church, but it's very easy to lose that feeling of what it feels like to come into a church and be new and to be like, like this. Are these nice people? <laughs> or are they weird people? <laughs> We're both. <laughs> Fill us with deeply rooted love. And I love the thought of being rooted. It says here being rooted and grounded in love. We may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length. It's like this picture of breadth and length and height and depth of the love. The love is supposed to be going everywhere in every direction. I did a a little search last week, and I wanted to know which tree had the deepest roots. And it's the fig tree. Here's a picture of a fig tree, Uh, one of the oldest known cultivated trees in the world. There's a fig tree in the Garden of Eden, right? They took fig leaves to cover up. their nakedness, Adam and Eve did. And the fig tree is a fascinating tree because as you can see here in its giant form, the roots stay fairly close to the surface and they go in every direction, right? All the other trees are bothered by the fig tree because the fig tree has no understanding of personal space. Some of you don't have any understanding of personal space. Uh, but it just keep, the roots just keep going and getting in everyone else's business. But the roots also go deep so that there, there actually is a Guinness World Record for deepest rooted tree Guess what? It's the fig tree. The the deepest roots ever found reach 400 feet, and it's a fig tree. And in 2010, they they filmed a documentary about this tree. Here's a picture of the Statue of Liberty. 400 feet is 100 feet taller than that. So go back to this fig tree. This fig tree's roots just keep going down and down and down and all and everywhere in every direction. That's a wonderful picture of how the love of Christ is supposed to be spreading through this congregation. All right? Like, it's, it's just, it just is everywhere. It just keeps going deeper and all around. And wow, what, what an amazing picture of growing loving community. And then finally it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. That picture is of the truth of God and the love of God and the power of God just filling us and filling us and filling us. And boy, it's going to take 40 weeks to figure out how we continue to become that. And then it says, it's not just like a one-off, like there it was, the glory. 
It says, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Forever. This is an audacious prayer. Fill us with a glory brighter than the sun, all generations, forever and ever. What I love about the book of Ephesians is one author said it's pervasively positive in its understanding of the church. Really, Paul? All generations of the church filled with the glory. We've had some bad centuries. Am I right? But God's glory can come and fill us again. That is the hope, that is the prayer, that is the aim and the ambition of this book. Hey, are you excited to study the book of Ephesians? Are you excited to find out what it means for God's glory to fill this church? Amen. I am too. We're actually going to have one of our elders close us in prayer in just a moment. I have one more announcement to share with the church. You perhaps got it in an email earlier this week. Make sure that you're on our email list because then we can send out updates like this. Uh, But I want to read the email that we sent out earlier this week. uh, And then I'm going to invite up Pastor Dave and Ken Henley. And then Ken will close us in prayer in a moment. Here's the email that we sent out this week. Uh, It says, we would share this important announcement on Sunday. But I wanted to share it with you in advance to give you the heads up. Last fall, Pastor Dave began exploring another ministry opportunity. After much prayer and reflection, he and Crescent have concluded God is directing them to accept this new position. The elders wholeheartedly support Dave's decision. We believe God directed him to make this transition. So Dave will become the pastor of family ministries at Cornerstone Church in Litchfield, Minnesota this April. Dave has a heart for rural communities, and he's excited about Cornerstone's vision for rural church planting. This ministry places them 45 minutes from Crescent's parents and about an hour away from their daughter Talia's college. Our relationship with Dave is strong. He will depart with the highest honors for his five years of ministry in Palis. While it would be hard to say goodbye to such faithful friends, we are ascending church, and we aspire to release our very best servants as the Lord leads. It is his church, and we follow his direction for his glory. Hey, welcome Pastor Dave and Ken Henley up on the stage with me. Come on up, guys. Awesome. Well, Dave, we want you to know that we love you, and we're so thankful uh, that you have just such a heart for the gospel. You have, what is it now, 30 years of uh, experience in ministry? What is it going on now? Yeah, may I'll be 30. 30 years of ministry, and I, you know, I'm glad that you're not like going to work for Walmart. Not that that would be bad, but like you're like, <laughs> give me more. Like, what's next, Lord? And I, I really am, am just excited for what God has for you, and we just treasure the five years of ministry that you have here. So uh, we couldn't be uh, more supportive while at the same time sad that you guys will be moving on. Yeah, thanks. Um, I just, you know, reflecting on the message you just gave, I thought, boy, that's really it. You know, Anchor Church, you've been uh, a fig tree to us and to our family. Your love has run deep. You've extended it wide, and uh, we're very grateful for our time here. You've shown us uh, the glory of God. You've taught us about the glory of God, and we couldn't be uh, happier with uh, the growth that God has done in our family and in our lives and uh, we're ready for this next adventure. Uh, we're excited about it, but then we walk in and we're like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, it's like cutting off our right arm to leave you all. And uh, yet, you know, you're in a church planting movement and we wouldn't have it any other way because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus in a time like this. Mm-hmm. We're going to a church planting movement 
that's planting a rural church in as many counties, rural counties in Minnesota and the upper Midwest as they can. Their vision is 87 churches in 25 years. And um, I get to be a part of that because you've put that into me. And uh, so you get to be a part of that. And um, I just want to read uh, a passage I've been meditating on in light of this transition from Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 3 through 6 says, I thank my God every time I remember you, and I always pray for all of you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from my first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, be, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And uh, you've given us a taste of heaven, and we appreciate your deep and warm relationship that um, you know, you've brought into our lives. And uh, we would all say in unison, to him be glory in the church. Amen. We have uh, a handful of weeks here with you guys. They're uh, not going to officially land over there until April. So uh, March 8th, I believe on Sunday, we're going to have an official uh, goodbye party for you guys. The 7th is the chili cook-off. Dave's going to be there, and so the guys will have a chance uh, to, to hear from him and just, you know, express our appreciation to him. So uh, this isn't goodbye necessarily. Yeah, we're just, you know, it's the beginning of the announcement. Um, but again, we're so thrilled for you guys, and we are ascending church, and it's our joy to really send people out. And I know I speak for the elders when I say that. It was a cold December morning, I think, in 2015, when you and I met at Starbucks. And uh, I was able to share with you the vision uh, that, that Ryan and I had about having uh, an adult ministries pastor. And uh, I remember you getting excited about that. And, well, it's a long story, but uh, the rest is history. But um, I just wanted to say that we are a better church for having you here. Amen. Amen. Yeah, now this isn't, a, we're going to, of course, commission them and send them off and all that. We're just praying for you guys at the initial, at the initial step here, okay? Right. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful that you sent us Dave um, to be a part of our church family. You have used his servant's heart to make us a better and healthier church family. We have been blessed by his shepherd's heart, and he will truly be missed. But you are also a God who leads and sends, and as such, we are sending church. And although Dave and Crescent will be greatly missed, we know that this new mission to which they have been called has your fingerprints all over it. So we send them out, knowing that they are there in your loving hands, and that you are about to use Dave in great ways at Cornerstone Church in Minnesota. So we pray to that end, that you would use Dave there, just as you have here to love, to care for, and to lead the church there. Fill him with your spirit to have an impact for your kingdom as we send him out with our blessing and with our love. And it is in his powerful name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen. 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 Dave, we love you, brother. Thanks so much. Amen.
All right. Well, um, I'm going to actually have a stand, and uh, we're going to dismiss together. Um, and Dave, is Crescent in this service? She coming to the next one? Why don't Dave and Crescent? Why don't you guys come on down forward here so that people could come up and just talk with you guys? You can go ahead. You know, and uh, feel free to come forward and talk with them. Uh, and as you go, know that there are refreshments in the gym. We'd love for you to stay after for a little while, and know that you are loved. God